Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special mailbag edition. I can't call it a bonus edition anymore because we do it every single week. But it's a, still a special podcast because I have a special mate with me, the very special Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, Doc? I am very good uh, special mate uh, on the other side <laughs> in Barrow and whatnot. <laughs> For those who, are, who don't know, I'm Scott Phillips. Uh, and we are the two knuckleheads who present the Motley Fool Money podcast, including this particular mailbag episode. So whether you're listening for the first time or the hundredth, thank you for dialing in. Thank you for spending a little bit of your Sunday afternoon, maybe your Monday morning commute with us. Hopefully for some of us, we're actually commuting a little bit more, not because I love commuting or traffic, but because hopefully it means the world is getting back to normal. Mate, we have got a spectacularly large number of questions from our wonderful listeners. So I'm going to try and avoid it, starting with a tangent, although I think I've probably already failed at that one. And what did we say we get straight into it? The bag is heavy. Let's do it. The bag is heavy. Let's lighten it up a bit. All right. First question came from well, so uh, we, it came from David, and, and David David has listened to this podcast a few times. Uh, both our uh, reading of questions that say please only use my first name and and my usual tripping over my own feet trying to forget doing that. So David said uh, perhaps question perhaps for the mailbag. If so, use only my middle name if you know it. Otherwise, okay to use my full name. <laughs> Oh, I appreciate that, Dave. Thank you. I, I will. I will preserve your privacy by not using your surname. But I, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, although, if your middle if your middle name is Amadeus, then I should have taken the risk because I'm going with David Amadeus. Uh, so, if that is your middle name, then let me know. I've got it right. Otherwise, don't tell me because I like to pretend I have. All right. He says, um, uh, "Insert obligatory but well deserved praise here." Absolutely, more than happy to do that, Dave. First question. In the intro to the podcast, it sounds like... Now I should say, by the way, by way of background, Dave is an American. In, in, the, in the intro, it sounds like shares, a share market, the S&P, the 06. Now, I'm tipping that Dave is, is hearing an Australian accent saying ASX quickly and hearing ASX's 06. Uh, I think he might even know that. I think he might possibly be having a dig at us. He says, I have looked everywhere for what the 06 refers. I think it might be a subset of the All Ordinaries. Now my thinking is just my uneducated ear hearing how the ASX is pronounced. Um, he said, while I would say the ASX, perhaps it is the ASX, I think is how he's pronouncing that. Anyway, that I'm hearing. Please translate for an American. We've done that. He said, I won't say Yank as I am from Texas. Now I have to say the, 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 Australian, uh, the Australian Yank is, is common, uh, but I'm also mindful that uh, there were times during, during the American past where being a Yankee denoted a particular part of America. So um, maybe you'll take Dave, maybe you'll take Yank in the Australian vernacular rather than the American vernacular. Otherwise, I could call you a sepo or a septic. Uh, you might want to look that one up. Uh, you can have a, have a look at that. It's rhyming slang, put it that way. All right, here's a second question. I note the benchmark you use, at least for extreme opportunities, is the all odds total return. In the US, they use the S&P, but not the S&P total return. This has always bothered me a bit as the S&P total return is in line with the returns that one would receive. They acknowledge this, but say the reason is that per industry standard, the plain S&P is what is used as the norm for comparison. I believe it and I accept the rationale. My question is, what is the norm comparison in Australia? Is it the All Lords or the All Lords total return? With Australia having believed what I think is the higher concentration of dividend payers, I can see this as being perhaps the norm, and that's from Dave. I love this question, mate, because it is one of my bugbears, one of my enormous bugbears, that every night on the news, every everyone who talks about stocks say, oh, the ASX is up X percent or down X percent. Now, on a daily basis, no big deal, but over time, those dividends matter a heap, right? If you only look at the, the price return, you're only getting half the story. So 
EO, mate, you're not exactly full of dividend-paying stocks. That's Extreme Opportunities, the service you run with, Kevin. Um, what, what benchmark do you use and why? Well, we, we use the ASX All Odds um, as well, which is basically the, the total return, ASX total return mm-hmm. index. And again, and why like, is that, I mean, mate? Oh, well, for, for a simple reason. Like, I mean, the the simple, like, or, or here's how I look at it. The simplest investment an Australian investor potentially could make is to essentially buy the entire market via some sort of ETF. Um, you know, typically if you buy um, the the ASX 300 ETF, you're going to get something very close to, very, very close to um the the total returns that the market delivers, right? And the reason why total in the world is important is, mm. uh, I mean, for companies that are paying the dividend, their stock price might not go up as much, uh, but they're still, you know, if they pay 5% of dividend and they, they, you know, their stock price goes up by 2%, then effectively it's a 7% gain. So you want to account for that fact. Um, yep. And it accounts for the fact that there's a choice, right? The choice is, you know, if you invested in the entire market, which is you didn't make any stock selections on your own, you took no... Uh, company-specific risk, but you just took the market risk, then you'd get X return. Well, mm. how much better are you doing than that if you're taking a company-specific risk? Uh, and therefore, it makes sense to compare. Uh, no, it would be unfair, I guess, to a lot of those, as, as Dave pointed out, to a lot of those dividend-paying companies do not include their dividends in their calculations. So it's just a fairer comparison. Um, and it's just, as I said, you know, it's, you know, it, any participant in the market can easily invest in the market at least now, it was not used to be the case many, many years ago, but it is now the case that you can easily invest in the market and therefore you can get something that's very close to what the index's total return is. Like, you know, you can get to, to 0.01% or whatever it is uh, of that. So I think this is a fair comparison and that's why we do it here. It's, it's, and as Dave is right to point out, that it is meaningful, especially if the dividends are large, which I would say is, you know, it's four and a half percent or so on the SX200, something around that ballpark. So it's important that we, it is accounted for. So that, that's at least my rationale or my understanding. That's how I view it. We do the same in every service across the Motley Fool. Um, the, the, the very idea is exactly as Dave imagines and as you've already said, Doc, we think it's the fairest way to do it. Um, the, the reality is if you don't invest in stocks, you buy the index and get the total return. Um, there are ETFs that track exactly that. Um, the code STW is one most often used. I think it's the iShares, mate, from memory. Um, you can do that. You can do it fine and it gives you a good, decent enough return. Uh, we think the total return is the fairest and most appropriate way to do it. I have no comment on what the US guys are doing. They're, they're making their own decisions. I, I'm not involved in their benchmarking, nor are they in ours. Um, but we think the total return is the only appropriate way to do it. I think it's fair also, Dave, to, to mention, as you have already, that we pay a high dividend yield on average here. So it's simply more appropriate, more important that we include it. Frankly, all of our services would look much better if we didn't because um, – and this is this is something that's important about the Motley Fool, right? Like we get, we get grief from people on different reasons and, you know, some of it's fair, some of it's not. Um, we do two things really, really importantly. First is we are using the benchmark we think is most appropriate. Um, we could use the ASX 200 instead. We don't. The, the All Lords is bigger. It's more representative of the whole market, so we use that. Uh, the norm to your question is actually the ASX 200 these days. Um, that's fine and not that, that different, but we figure it is more accurate, more important to use the bigger one. And we use total return because, again, we think that as an investor, I could I could invest in an ETF and get that return. And so that's the number we should be benchmarking against, and so we do. We think that's also super important to do. Lastly, um, and by the way, as I said, we could, if we just use the ASX, our returns look spectacularly better. Like our average yield on almost every one of our services made, I think, including even um, everlasting income. I'm pretty sure every service would yield less than the average market return. So we could actually bump our returns up meaningfully by simply ignoring it. Uh, we don't, and we think that's the right thing to do. 
Um, also, too, our services take our take the buy price for every recommendation of the day after we make the recommendation. So if members push the price up, Doc's had some of these in EO where the price has gone up a few percentage points, um, we actually then lock in a worse price. Most companies say, well, I recommended it today, so that's the price, and wherever it finishes tomorrow, that's someone else's problem. Um, we always let members go first before we lock in that price. And so if the price goes up, we actually get a worse price than we could actually claim. If we were a fund manager, we could be buying surreptitiously at the current price, um, but you know, and then tell people. Um, that's one way to get the price to go up. We don't do that. We do exactly the reverse, which is we let members go first. And then we say, well, whatever happens, we'll cop that and we'll take the higher price. It can occasionally be lower just because I guess that's the way the market moves. But generally, I think last time I did the numbers for share advisement, it was like 3.5% or something. It was a really, really big, meaningful difference. Uh, but again, we're happy to do that because we think it's the right thing to do for our members. I'll just quickly add a clarification. So to, to Dave's comment about what our US colleagues do, so they do actually use the average S&P, or they use the S&P total return index. Oh, do they? Okay. Uh, I just was, yeah, I was just checking that. So they, they actually use that, at least on the one service that I looked up called Stock Advisor, I think they use the S&P total return index. So that would, I would assume the total return index also uses, uh, you know, it's basically the same thing as here, you know, its benchmarks include a dividends reinvested. That's basically a similar strategy. Thank you. I didn't check that. I should have. Uh, thanks for the question, uh, Dave. Made a couple of questions from Paul and Tommy about an article I wrote in the paper. I've got more to say on this on Tuesday, um, but I will reference it because it comes with another question. So if you want to find the article, I've written an article called There's a Better Way to Fund Your Retirement. Uh, it's in the SMH, probably the age, I think, in the money section. So just Google There's a Better Way to Fund Your Retirement and Scott Phillips. I guess that would probably get people to that article. Um, I won't go through a whole lot of detail. Listen on Tuesday for a bit more about that and how you can if not at least make super change, at least do something for your kids. Um, Paul says, though, love your idea for super in the paper today. It would take a politician with huge kahunas to implement, so it's unlikely to happen. I think kahunas are brain cells, right? Is that what he means? I think so. <laughs> to implement. I don't he know. Says, so it's unlikely to happen. <laughs> Still, sowing the seed might lead to change one day. Thank you, Paul. I desperately hope that's true. Um, I, I mean, so nice. I appreciate the feedback, Paul, so thank you. Tommy, though, sent us another question. So really loved your super article on SMH. Inspiring stuff. Sent it to all my mates and family members. It made me start thinking about custodian accounts for future kids and or nieces and nephews, which leads me to a question. I've listened to, and this is, we have a, a, web, a podcast in the US called Motley Fool Answers, uh, run by Robert Brokamp, known as Bro and Allison Southwick. So I've listened to Bro and Allison on Motley Fool Answers talk about setting up accounts like this in the US. But looking on Vanguard Australia's website, I can't seem to find any of the same language the Americans use to talk about this stuff. Is there a Fool Australia article you might already know of about setting up these kinds of joint or custodial accounts for minors, or maybe a future question for the mailbag? Tommy, I took your suggestion. We're making a mailbag question instead, mate. So thank you for the question. It's a good one. Um, Doc, this, I, I, it frustrates the hell out of me. There's got to be a better solution for this. I don't know what it is. Um, you used to be able to invest on behalf of kids, but people screwed with the tax system so badly and pretended their kids were earning hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, and, and therefore avoiding tax on their own account. And so government's reasonably, I think, in this case, clamped down on it pretty hard and said, well, you can't do it anymore. Um, so kids' accounts are taxed really, really meaningfully now. Um, do you have any particular suggestions as to how to invest best for newborns or for minors? Well, not really. Like, I mean, um, well, I mean, you know, you could you could have a trust. So, it, you know, and then one way to do that again, like, so one again, there's no, I, I don't, I don't know what are the best solutions, but maybe the best solution is to invest by a trust. You know, every family member by default could be part of the trust, and eventually, the kids could be included. And um, 
that that is one mechanism. You, you know, it doesn't. You know, if you have a lot of income and stuff coming through in in your investment, it doesn't help mm. because there's there still need to be apportioned to. Um, right. So I really, I don't know. Um, That's the biggest yeah, problem, like, unfortunately. You know, what I, yeah. So, so you know, but if your strategy does not include dividends, uh, if your strategy is just growth and there is there are no dividends, and you know the, the number of transactions or sales or capital gains are few, then, then maybe a trust is is a good mechanism for investing for you know fifteen twenty years. Um, and and then eventually when you 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 decide to transact you know the transactions can be apportioned or whatever to uh, the the kids that you actually meant this for um, i mean that's one model i'm not sure if there are the models again this this is sort of the question that i think is best addressed by your accountant your advisor financial advisor uh, depends on a whole bunch of other things so i really don't have a good uh, solution yeah unfortunately it, it, it really is a bugger and this is one I, I don't have a good solution mate i have to say i'd happily uh, write an article lobby government to make a change so if anyone's got a great idea uh let me <laughs> let us know um it's it's a really difficult it's a really difficult thing so if you if you jump on um, the ato website go to ato it's under children's share investments there's also one separate one for um children's savings accounts children's share investments are worth doing the problem is that unfortunately the tax rate, I want to say is 60%, something like that on unearned income. So income basically um, uh, for for kids. Um, so it's a tough one. I, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, look, here's the, here's the thing that I've found most people do and I've certainly um, suggested that my sister do this for her kids is simply put the account in her name um, and then basically leave the money until a certain age, probably 21, um, and then transfer the account and or transfer the shares. It will trigger capital gains tax. It's kind of unavoidable. The CGT is probably better than the tax you might pay on earned income, although as Doc said, if you're not earning dividends at all, it can be useful. The problem is at 416 bucks a year, again, with the Australian tax dividend system, as we talked about before, that's about eight grand's worth of shares on a 5% yield if you're getting an average kind of return. Um, that's not a lot over time, and even if you're not putting eight grand in today, you're hoping over 20, 30, 40 years that the, the income starts to compound meaningfully. So look, I don't know. It's a, it's a really, really tough one. You put it in their name and just cop the extra tax hit in the last few years before they turn 18. That's one way to do it. Uh, otherwise, put in your own name as trustee for the kid. Um, that's that's the other way to do it. Um, or you can actually just leave the, leave the shares in your own name and literally as your own account and then just gift them uh, an amount of money that, that's the equivalent of the investment, what they'd be worth. So you put away a thousand bucks now, it's worth, I don't know, 10 grand at, in 18. Just pick some numbers. Um, you just... Just, you know, you give, them, give them 10 grand worth of shares at 18 or, or 10 grand less the tax if you want to at 18. Um, either way, they're, they're the sort of ways you could do it to minimise that. But yeah, it's, it's a really, really, really terrible system. It needs overhaul. There is no easy solution. Unfortunately, I wish I had a better solution for you, Tommy. Um, mate, I've got to say though, I'd, my only advice is is don't let the tax stop you doing it. Is probably my the, my best advice. Um, even if they only end up with eight grand rather than ten grand, because the tax you got to pay, well, they're still eight grand better off. And then if you want to multiply that again through their lifetimes with larger amounts of money, you really can start to see the value of that. So I, as always, focus on the after tax return, not the amount of tax you might have to otherwise pay. But it's it's a really really crappy scenario. I'm sorry. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to really add. Beautiful. Let's go to a question from Craig. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. A few weeks ago, I wrote to you as I had just got scared and sold out of my Webjet shares at a big loss. Bugger. It appeared I may have picked the bottom. Double bugger. <laughs> I have since watched the share price double. Undeterred, I have put that money into some high-growth US tech stocks. Thing is, they don't make any profits, putting all the money back into business to grow at a very fast rate. You two gentlemen have great wisdom. 
I think he means other people, but we'll assume he's meaning us. So I've got a question for the podcast then. Is price to sales a good metric to value such a company? Love the podcast and full on. And that's from Craig. Now, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background, mate, and throw it to you because you're the growth growth stock guru. Um, in the past, people have always, or always, mostly looked at the price to earnings as a reasonable assessment of value, right? You say, okay, I'm paying $10 for a dollar's worth of earnings a year. That's a P of 10. Uh, and over time, you get a sense of where the company normally trades out, what sort of multiple, also compared to the industry, compared to its growth rates. It was a pretty good starting point. It's increasingly over the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, mate, people have, have increasingly been prepared to shell out large amounts of money for companies with very little or no profits because, as the question, as Craig rightly says, these businesses have, have created a business model, a really brand new business model, largely around software or super capitalite businesses that you can kind of see the future, not, not clearly, but with some sense of what the future might look like. And people are prepared to pay a whole lot more, a whole lot earlier in a company's life. In the past, these businesses probably would have been private businesses for years. Then they started making some money. They would have probably listed on the ASX or the one of the US exchanges or anywhere around the world. They're listing much, much earlier now because people can see more clearly the potential future. That means the PE doesn't really work because if there's no E, there's no PE. And people are using price to sales, mate, as, as some sort of proxy or at least some sort of basis for assessing value. Again, as the, as the growth guru... For Craig, how is, is does price sales is it a useful metric? And if so, how do you use it in working out what a decent price to sales metric might look like? Yeah, that's a good question. So, like over as you said, like the the so in the in the seventies, eighties, and the sixties, there were a lot of capital heavy businesses where you know you made certain capital investments and then you made you know profits basically on top of that. Um, eventually, so you know you. You had a steady stream of profits, and uh, you know there was only so much growth you could get. So you could eke out like you know ten percent growth on the top line, and and you'd have an E, and then you know people would thought a PE of twenty or twenty five is is good for sort of you know company growing at fifteen to twenty percent rate uh, of its earnings, right? Um, that was the model. Then in sort of the late nineties, we had you know late nineties to early two thousand, we had a bunch of this you know this this explosion mm. of um, tech companies, capital light companies, as you said, you know the. Lots and lots of these, many of them went bust, but you know, the you know, Amazon is from 1997 or something like that, right? So, so those companies came, which you know, introduced this model where they basically took every bit of the cash flow that they generated and invested, reinvested back into the business to make it grow. So that's sort of the origin of the price to sales, or you know, some people like to look at enterprise value, uh, which is basically just the market cap uh, plus debt minus cash position. So it, you know, if somebody wants to buy the company, how much does it cost effectively um, in, in total value? And look at that divided by the sales. Now that's it. It's just like the PE is an imperfect metric. The in the P over S or uh, EV over sales, enterprise value to sales is also an imperfect metric, right? And the reason it's imperfect is what is a you know what is a good P uh, <laughs> right. what is a good right. uh, what's a good uh, PS depends on well how fast is the S growing, yeah. which is right. same with the PE and, right, to some degree. Event, I mean a PE of eight can be really expensive, a PE of twenty can be cheap. It all depends on the growth rate. But as you say, because there's no profit, the sales metric is it a bit higher risk to, yeah, to use as, an, as, as a metric? It do. That, that's right. Yeah, it's is you should. I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I say is worthwhile to do is to think about, well, think about the business currently, and think about sort of the margin opportunity in that business, right? And 
go out five years and think how how much the revenue could be. Mm. And sometimes simple rough models mm. could 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 be useful, right? So I mean, think about a typical software business. A good software business should be de- should be running at an operating profit of you know have should have operating margins you know north of. 28, 30%. Okay, so for every $10 of sales, right. they keep three so, bucks. So that, yeah. So so that's the model I would think about. And then you, what you can think about that, you know, you could just run that down. You could just think of how much you want to pay off for an operating profit of of that much growing still at, at that point. And, and typically a company when it's generating, uh, you know, 30% to 40% margin, at that point it could still be growing top line at 10%, 15%, and maybe the bottom line at a much faster okay. rate, right? So how much are you going to pay for that? So that's the sort of model. Um, you could use uh, enterprise value to sales as well, but then what you really need to do is, you know, what is a good enterprise value? <laughs> Actually, the problem with that is yeah. it, it really boils down to understanding the business model and thinking five years forward. So, yeah, right. if, uh, forward. Uh, another way to do it is to look at sort of the, for the sector. So, you know, if you're looking at, say, cloud computing companies, then as, as a group, they you would think that they should trade at a certain multiple because they typically will share certain characteristics. Uh, and then you could, you know, decide whether that multiple is high or too high or too low. So let me ask you, mate, if you're a reasonably young but successful and growing cloud computing business, what sort of price to sell? I mean, just, just to give our, our audience a bit of a sense, uh, th- those are the considerations, but can you, are you able to put a couple of numbers on I mean, if you set a pass size of 5 or 10 or 15, what, what's, a, what's, a, what's, an, what's a fair, so not, not really attractive, not really cheap, expensive, what's a fair price to sales for a you know, kind of five-year-old successful cloud computing business? Can you give us some sort of broad idea? Yeah, so so somewhere between like you know that could be anywhere between like it could trade for anywhere between say ten to twenty. Okay, right. Really, like yeah, and that I'm giving you that big range, yeah, yeah. largely because it yeah the reason for that would be how fast the top line is growing is number one. So maybe it's growing at forty percent, but it's for, at what base? Right, forty yeah. percent from a billion dollars, or forty percent from like a two hundred million dollars, <laughs> or what it is, and how yeah, large can yeah. it be? That that matters. Okay. Um, so, so in that sort of spectrum, okay. typically less than here's a ballpark. I would say less than ten, but with nice top line growth with potential for eventual profits down the lane, looks to me uh, would tend to be cheap, okay, right? As you get to that sort of the 20 zone, you are getting to, looks to be expensive, right? right. And uh, you really need, um, you need a lot of things to go right at that, at, at sort of that point. Awesome. Thank you, mate. I think hopefully that's helpful for our listeners. As always, the problem with valuation, people say, oh, how much do you pay for company X? It, it's always a it depends question. So um, thank you for giving us some some kind of guardrails around it, Doc. It's, it's always bloody hard, right? How big is it? How big can it be? How profitable is it? How profitable can it be? How big is the market? You know, those things are super, super important, but but so specific. Uh, it's really, really hard to say exactly how much you should pay for, particularly growth businesses, right? If you've got a very boring bank or infrastructure company, you can probably put some reasonably narrow kind of valuation kind of metrics around it, right? Don't, you know, a couple of percentage points either side type stuff. When you've got these things that are just growing fast, big, huge opportunities, really, really hard, at least for me, to try and find an exact number, but that's so, so 10 to 20 is fair, less than 10, generally pretty attractive, more than 20, you'd kind of be staying away. Is that, is that, a, is that a reasonable starting point for further work? 
Yeah, like yeah. So that's that's regional starting point for you know not profitable. You know those companies that are yet to generate free cash flow right. and things like that. Um, you know, once you're generating free cash flow, you can look at different things at that point. Beauty. There you go. Question from Jaden. Hey Scott and Doc, love the podcast. Look forward to it each week. He says, if it was up to me, I'd say you guys need to do another one a week, so it's not as long between knowledge. Jaden, I'm not sure about our boss, but maybe we'll see. Question I have is, do you think we are in uh, in uncharted waters? with investing due to this being the first real recession that the world has had where people have the means to invest at their fingertips via smartphones, computers, iPads, etc. And do you think this makes for, although a quicker recovery, maybe a more volatile recovery with people finding it so easy to buy and sell now? He says, again, love the podcast. I'm also a member of Hidden Gems and Share Advisor. I've only been investing for 12 months, so very fresh and love being able to learn quickly listening to you guys. Thank you, Jade. That's very kind. Um, what do you reckon, Doc? Is this is this a, is this unprecedented? Obviously, for a whole lot of reasons. Does the access to trading and technology make it a, 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 a you know faster changes, but a more volatile market environment? Uh, I would say my my take would be that I don't think the access to you know retail investors is the cause for any agility of the market reaction. That, that's my guess. Uh, the, I think the agility of market reaction is largely because of a lot of algorithmic trading uh, in a lot of sentiment-driven tra- trading and a lot of you know, other input-driven trading that's happened automatically. That has certainly increased over time. So that, that could explain part of the agility. But I don't think it's the access to end users right. that has actually meaningful impact. That's, that's my guess. Okay. I am... Um I, I'm really, really fascinated, Doc. I have to say, I don't know the answer either, Jaden's question. I'm not going to like this long answer, but Jaden, look, firstly, great question, mate. Perfect way to think about it. Glad you're thinking about the market that way because it's really, really important. And, and understanding the behavior of others, even if you can't predict it, is useful to remembering that, frankly. Um, taking your cue from the market is very rarely a good idea. I, look, I think it's fascinating to me. Retail investors are definitely behaving differently, Doc, to the GFC. So I was around during the GFC as an investor. Um, our boss was running one of the Motley Fool's businesses overseas at the time. Um, the GFC, people walked away from them, ran away from the market. They deserted the market in droves. Our business struggled for new members. It was a really tough time for the business, really tough time for the market. This time around, mate, people are actually actively looking to invest. They, they kind of, you know, they, they believe it will recover. They, they, they were looking for opportunities. We had people knocking on our door virtually, um, not literally, uh, saying, you know, can I come in? What do you got? How can you help me? You know, is now a great time to invest? There doesn't seem to be a very different sentiment among retail investors, I have to say, this time around. I don't know whether that's necessarily shared by the professional investing group. Uh, I do think, by the way, we have seen, I've, I've said this before in earnings season, I think we are in, I have no, no data to back this up, so I could be completely wrong. I think we got, we, we get in a much more volatile investing market over time, something that I've seen over the last three or four earnings seasons. I think we've seen bigger moves in share price on earnings that I can remember before that on average. So lots of big 20, 30% movements, which were really, really rare before that. And again, the same sort of volatility in the overall market when you've got massive drops and then a really fast recovery. The market's up 25% from its lows as we record this, believe it or not. Um, which is, you know, it, it doesn't happen. I mean, we had, we had the shortest bear market in history, apparently, um, after the March 23 bottom. And, you know, so it, it does feel like if not retail investors, there is some different behaviours, different market kind of activity that does seem to be changing the way shares are trading, mate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, I think what is... Uh, you know, like what is important to remember is like if you don't invest in shares, what do you invest in, right? So, I mean, if if you can buy a company which has a free cash flow yield of 3%, mm. 
um, and is growing its revenue top line 20%, and therefore, by definition, should be growing its you know free cash flow uh, by a lot over time. If it's, mm. if it's got mar- you know operating leverage, why would you invest in you know like a bond or something yeah, else? Right. So I think that's there's a there's a lot of liquidity. Uh, in the market, largely because of you know what are the quantity yeah, using okay. and so on and so forth. Cost of money, yeah, uh, and it cost of money is 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 that's mm. one thing. This, um, I think, the other thing that's different this time versus other times is the sort of the reaction um, of governments. Governments around the world have basically responded with, oh, here's some check, here's some money, <laughs> uh, you know, here's how we are going to, you know." Right, so, right. I mean, a lot of that is 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 finding its way mm. maybe into the market. The other thing I think I'll point out is the GFC scarred people. Yeah. And for the longest time, a lot of people sat on the sidelines saying this is unreal. I don't want to invest. You know, a lot of people have been sitting in cash for like ages. Yeah. So a lot of people, um, you know. Maybe, maybe this is the time you reckon. Well, you know, maybe this is the time to get in. So it's just combination. It's hard to really know uh, what's what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think the you know, I'm, I'm sure the parts of market which are all you know overvalued, mm. as they you know, as it's always the case, that parts of market which is very attractive, and you know, there's nothing is really fundamentally different on on that that higher level. You know, whether it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, there are mm. you know the markets. The other thing I think is like I, I see this. There's a tendency to equate. What's going on? I, I think the underlying comment, and, and there's nothing wrong with this comment because I see that a lot. The underlying comment basically implies that this every stuff is so bad. Why? How can you know? How are the markets behaving in a certain way? Mm. Well, the market and the economy overall are not directly correlated, mm. right? So um, there'll be a bunch of companies in the market that do well, a bunch of companies in the market that won't do well, and the market and the economy don't have to be correlated. Market could actually grow in a recession. Uh, again, it depends on what's in the market, right, and what, what constitutes the market. So I think those are the things um, to matter, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, so a whole bunch of things. Very good, but really good question, Jaden. You're on the right track, mate, so well done. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Brett. Hi, Scott and Doc. Hope you're both well. I was wondering if you could clarify the relationship between Brickworks and Washington H. Sol Pattinson. According to the Brickworks website, Brickworks owns 39.4% shareholding of Sol Pats. Sol Pats in turn holds Brickworks within its investment portfolio. Wheels within wheels. Keep up the great work. He says, P.S. would be great to hear some more arguing between you two. Maybe a bull versus bear case on a particular stock you aren't aligned on. Thank you, Brett. I don't know why you hate me, but apparently there's a reason. Um, Doc and I argue enough already offline without arguing more on the podcast, I reckon. Always, always in, in uh, fun and with respect. But maybe we'll try and find something to argue about. What do you reckon, Doc? Yeah, we can always, uh, we, you know, we have two topics that we can always argue about. So, ha- I um, find something new, though, surely. Otherwise, we become like Waldorf and Statler on the, on the Muppets, right? Just in the, in the, in the, in the, up, in the, up in the bleachers arguing about the same things. Those are such fabulous, you know, topics. We just <laughs> stick, with the, stick with the topics that give you the most oh, clicks. Oh, dear. All right. Um, let's go with Sopats and Brickworks, Matt. I, I have recommended both. you want me to pick this one up or do you, want, do you have a thought? 
I don't know. I I have no thoughts on these two. <laughs> yeah, all right. So Brett, it's so the first thing I'd say is don't don't try too hard to understand it in the sense that this shareholding arrangement is now outlawed. Um, so it was grandfathered by the ASX because it already pre-existed. I don't know when the rules were changed, but it can't happen again now. So it's a, it's a quirk of history uh, worth understanding for for this particular circumstance. But for anyone else listening, don't worry too much about it because it can't happen today. Um, so back in the day, there's a whole lot of things called poison pills these days. You can write things in company constitutions and stuff that stop takeovers from happening. In the old days, they didn't exist. And so what happened was uh, Brickworks and Solpats were worried about some corporate raider trying to take them over. So because they kind of knew and liked each other, what they decided to do was a deal where they bought effectively roughly – changed since then, but about 45% of each other. So Brickworks put 45% of Solpat shares, Solpat's put 45% of Brickworks shares. Again, as I said, those numbers have changed over time, but effectively it was to stop anyone being able to take over either company. So you know, if Solpat's owned most of Brickworks, or less than half, but you know, a, a large minority stake, um, it, it meant a takeover could never happen. You could never have a corporate raider come and take this business over um, and, and, try and try and kind of be a share out the spoils without the agreement of the other party. It pretty, pretty much made it both takeover proof. I guess it was possible at some level to maybe try and take over both at the same time. But again, because they owned part of each other, they could they could each vote against the takeover of the other party, right? So that was what it was designed for and that's why it exists. Um, you're right, it does make things a little bit complex particularly when thinking about the value of it because you kind of have to back out the value of each to, to kind of work out what the remaining value is. Um, some of Solpat's you know, value is the Brickworks shares, but then some of Brickworks share value is the Solpats shares. And so you kind of, you can drive you mad trying to work it out. You can do the math. It basically just requires you to take the component parts of each out on a spreadsheet. It's, it's, it's not, you've got to think about it, but it's, but it's, it's doable. Um, so look, that's, that's why it happens. That's why it happened in the past. Uh, certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's something that wouldn't be allowed to happen today. I, I'm not a big fan of corporate raiders, generally speaking, particularly if you've got a well-run company. I reckon if you don't like the company you own, just sell the shares. You don't, you don't need to hold them if you don't like what's going on. So the whole activist investor kind of corporate raider trying to fix things up thing, I think maybe it's even, I don't know if it's even good for capitalism generally, but certainly as an individual shareholder, um, if you don't like it, you just simply walk away. And I guess the same is true of, of other shareholders, but Solpats and Brickworks have done a great job over decades of looking after shareholders. And that's, to my mind, a pretty good thing. I own shares in uh, Solpats, both the recommendations of as a share advisor. So again, take that grain of salt. Um, there was a deal or, or a takeover or a, a um, uh, breakup deal that was mooted about 18 months ago by Perpetual and Mark Carnegie. Um, I thought it was a terrible idea at the time. I still think it was a terrible idea. That didn't go ahead, thankfully. Um, Solpats are never going to set the world on fire, but they're a quality manager of, of investment assets that have been doing a great job for more than a century. Uh, I reckon you leave them do their own thing. But again, when you think about the value of it, yeah, just just you've got to, you've got to subtract part of the value, but not the whole value of each. Um, you want to basically re- retain so Solpat's shareholding of Brickworks. The 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 bit of that shareholding that's not the Solpat shares is what you want to add back to the Solpat's value to work out the real value of the of the company. Anything more on that, Doc? Um, no. Here's one that's going to get me in trouble again, mate. This one's from Cameron. <laughs> He's asking about short sellers. Now, last time I branded on short sellers, I got flamed on Twitter for weeks. Uh, By, funnily enough, those same short sellers, uh, I I figure there's a fair chance no other than they're listening to me here, but on Twitter, you can have your stuff shared with other people. So that kind of invites the the trolls around. Um, Cameron says, hey guys, so my question this time is about short selling. If the upside is capped at 100% and the downside could be infinite, why are people so excited about short selling? It just seems like so much risk for a maximum of 100%. It's ridiculous. Am I missing something? Love the podcast. Keep them coming. Doc, if the most you can make is 100%, answer. but you can lose... You know, 
losing more than 100% sounds weird, right? How is that possible? The answer is because hmm. you're effectively betting against the share price rising. If the share price goes up tenfold, you've got to fund the difference. So you can actually lose ten times the amount you actually invest, right? Uh, or, or, you know, hmm. or you're on the hook for. Compared to if the shares go from ten to zero, you only make 100% of that. So that's, it, is a, it is a very different set of circumstances. Why would anyone want to short sell? What's going on? Oh, I have a lot of, you know, here's the thing, right? A lot of, actually, some of the short sellers are smart people. You know, most of them are smart people. Mm -hmm. But smart people may not necessarily equate to rational people. <laughs> okay. Right? And that's my explanation of why, you know, people go around doing short selling. So some people take it on as like they're doing good to humanity. Some people mm -hmm. do, you know, take it on as like, you know, this is my intellectual quest. Yeah. You know, and, and my answer to that is, if you have an intellectual quest, go make something. <laughs> that's don't, right. You don't know, cure cancer. Go, go, <laughs> go, 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 do something. You know, don't, don't, you know, don't try to create an intellectual quest uh, on on the secondary market, right, right? right? I mean, this is the secondary market. Nothing is going to happen. Go build something. You know, create hundreds of thousands of jobs if you can. Go build a company. You know, or go, as you said, you know, cure cancer, right, right. cure Corona for God's sake. You know, uh, <laughs> like you see, so you see. You know, that's my real frank answer. Is you know the reason people do short selling is that they, it's it's a, it's a it you you're you somehow think you're intellectually something and you want to prove something and therefore you want to take down stuff. It's that all the take down mentality that comes into play. Tell me, that's you know, not it the does same have a role. People who are long there, mate. I mean, yeah, you know, the people the, the short sellers could say, and by the way, I'll give out your social media contact soon so they can flame you instead of me. Um, People say, well, hang on, that's what the long guys are doing as well. You, you, you share pickers. You can just buy the index if you wanted to, but you try and pick shares, you try and be smart. Why don't you guys go and cure cancer? No, no, no. no. So, so, you see, you know, I didn't... Here's the difference, right? Uh, if you go long, is it... It's not that you... You know, you're... It's not... It's not... I don't have to prove anything. Mm. The company has to prove me. And the company does its thing. It's not... It's not... Hundreds and thousands of people are long. Yeah. Like, you know, I could be long on something. Yeah. Like, and there'll be, like, you know, I could be long Apple. And there'll be hundreds of people long Apple. So does that make me intellectually superior to these, all these other people? I have nothing, there's nothing for me to prove. Yeah. Apple is going to do its thing and then something is going to happen. It's, I, I, I don't think it's about, it's not about having your position. Right. I think it's, to me, it fundamentally appears that shorting for a large number of people is about intellectual, it's a way of, Expressing your intellectual curiosity. Yeah, like you know, I know something that you don't know. I am a very good, you know, um, uh, cop of finding out stuff that it's it's about. Uh, you know, oh, the index or the or the regulatory framework is not doing its thing, and I, I think there is a role for that, but I think it gets pushed uh, far too much to one extreme. Uh, you, you know, they. And a lot of weird things happen. People, you know, go short. Then they have a huge short position because of a huge short position. They, you know, then they start, you know, doing things um, because they have a huge short position. Uh, stories are created, concocted. Um, you know, I have not heard of long people going and creating stories. And you know, uh, because you you can't. I mean, the thing with long is here's the difference, right? The, the long position ultimately relies on. In many cases, in most cases in business performance, you really need the the revenue numbers and the earnings numbers to go up, right? But the short position could be based on, oh, I think this is, you know, I'm going to write a newspaper report about it. Get a newspaper report written because then the short position, the short position almost entirely, and I'm not talking about day traders, uh, but in the short position almost entirely relies on movement 
to the downside caused by some, you need that information to get out. So you need to create that news story or you need to get somebody to investigate something. You need something to show up somewhere so that short position can actually become profitable, right? And if you stick on with the short position and the short is not working out, then, you know, you become even more entrenched. That's at least my view. Again, yeah, I... I yeah, again, a lot of rational people short things. And then once, here's the other problem that people have. If and this is true at the long side too, you might be short something, but you got to realize at what point your short has failed. A lot of shorts don't realize that their short has failed and they basically, you know, keep digging. So whether the longs do that too, uh, you know, you keep holding on to your losers. But the problem is if you hold on to your loser for too long, as long as you're not, you know, doubling down on your mistake, there's only so much money you can lose. But if you if you double if you basically hold on to your short and you're wrong on your short, you can actually have infinite amounts of money to lose, or a lot of money to lose. So I don't know. Um, that's what I think about shorts. So now everybody can inflame me. I'll just go off Twitter. <laughs> Fair enough. I um, as I say, Cameron, look, uh, yeah, I, I, Doc, you, I should have shuttled up the horse for that one. That was a bit of a high horse. I like it. Oh, it's each you know, that's what I think. <laughs> I mean, I think it's an each, yeah. All right, so I'm gonna, uh, I'll stop. I'm going to give my thoughts, Cameron. I'm actually going to I'm actually going to not defend shorts. So I'm going to I'm going to give you the rational reason they would put forward because I think it's worth worth highlighting. I actually agree with Doc in most cases. So, um, but I, but I will try and present both sides just because it's it's worth sharing just for for edification, hopefully. So if you're a short seller and you want to bring your intellect and your abilities to bear, there's no reason why the same skills that can find a winner can't necessarily find a loser. If you think that, um, we talked about newspapers on Friday, if you think the media industry is going to fail and you have a strong conviction on that and you think that you know the share price are therefore overvalued, the, the, the think isn't super different to the reverse where you might say, and, and by the way, I also think that um, Netflix will do well for the same sort of reasons or that Facebook or Twitter, social media will do well. You, you can take, you can take, you know, you can make both bets on the same kind of idea. And so, you know, the fact that share prices fall um, based on fundamental reasons aren't super different in, in style or, or thinking to the reverse. Now, um, again, as Doc said, there's, there's time issues and that kind of stuff. But you know, you, there's no there's no intellectual difference in theory between looking at a business and saying, I think it's worth more or I think it's worth less. And again, if you're right about both, you can make bets on both sides and still make money. Now, as you say, big risk around the potential payoff um, because the most you can make is 100%. The most you can lose is, is in theory infinite. I mean, someone someone will shut you down before you lose infinite amounts of money, but effectively that's right. So there, there are different maths at play. And and I would say, I think there's also some decent short sellers out there. I, I have a big problem with a, a heap of short sellers. Um, but I also think to some degree there is there are decent short sellers out there who try and do it the right way. So to Doc's point about there are plenty of activist short sellers who try and create the circumstances for a price to fall. And we all know, by the way, that fear is a much more attractive um, way to get people to respond than greed or than upside. So if I say, I think it's possible that Kogan will double, people go, oh, okay, that's interesting, but maybe it won't. If I say, I reckon Kogan's definitely going to fall by half, the response is very, very different, right? The person who thinks it's going to double says, oh, maybe I'll look at buying shares. If I say it's going to halve, the person with shares is like, oh my God, I might lose half my money, I better sell now. It's a really, really different instinctive human emotion. And that, to, to Doc's point about the activists, that can really make a huge difference to the way the market responds to those sort of reports. And we see those activist short sellers, activists may be a kind way to put it, put their reports into the media for exactly, I'll argue that purpose, I won't name names so I don't get sued by anybody, um, plenty of put, put those reports into the media for exactly that reason. They're trying to create those circumstances. 
Now, if they end up being right for independent reasons, if um, the Enron short sellers, right, that was obviously a fraud. They picked it up early. They probably deserve to make money from that. They weren't causing the fraud. They weren't causing the market to collapse necessarily, or if they did, whatever short-term damage they, they did was simply accelerating the long-term reality, which was eventually frauds just, just implode. And so, that, you know, again, there, there, is a, there is a rational reason why you might take that view and try and make money. It gets very murky very quickly when people start to use those powers for evil, not for good, um, and, and create the, the circumstances they seek to profit from. Um, that's a bit ugly and kind of isn't miles away from market manipulation in some ways. And again, people say, well, you guys are on the long side too. We've just said like, yeah, on Friday, Kogan's worth buying, or I did. Um, aren't you doing the same thing? Yeah, kind of, but the response by humans, because they're the people who make the trades, are very, very, very different to maybe this might go up versus this is definitely going to halve. And, and even yourself, if you think about shares you own, if someone came out with a report saying this is going to go down by half, the first thing you're going to say, well, I don't know, but I better sell just in case. And so those things create their own price momentum. So there are some decent short sellers. There are decent short sellers trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. There are some crappy ones. Um, and I think that's the broad concern. But the reason why you would short sell, well, if, you, again, if you're good at it, if you can pick a 50% gainer, in theory, you can pick a 50% loser as well. And that's, the, that, that's how you make money, right? And the people do. There's some good short sellers in Australia and around the world who make money legitimately the right way, picking the right sort of stocks, often frauds, sometimes just stuff to have value, but often frauds. Um, so that, that's why they do it. I think it has a place. I actually would, I've said before, and again, speaking of flaming, I would actually ban short selling because of the way it's used by nefarious people. I don't think it's necessary for the market, particularly given the the ugly bits of it. I think you could simply say, well, yeah, it's legitimate in some circumstances, but not you know, not all the time. Um, so is it really required by the capital markets? I'd say no, and so I'd get rid of it straight out. Now, I'd get rid of a whole lot of options trading for the same reasons, by the way, that yes, they can be used for good, but the, the fact that people can damage themselves really, really badly and all the market gets manipulated by it is worth removing them. So I would absolutely tomorrow do it. Um, that being said, it's plenty of people hate me for saying that because they make money doing it or they try and make money doing it. And uh, <laughs> the worst thing you can do in, in any sort of public position, certainly on social media, is threaten someone's potential livelihood or their ability to make money. So that's why I get flamed. Any more to add to that, Doc, as a, as a roundup? Cool. I think that's a, that was almost a rant. You, like, you know. I try to be balanced a little bit. I tried. <laughs> a question from Monica, <laughs> mate. Um, Monica finishes by saying, please use Monica and not my Twitter handle. Uh, it's kind of cool Twitter handle, actually. So, Monica, I'm sorry I can't use it, but uh, there you go. We won't. So, Monica says, hey, fools, hope you are well. Love the show. Listen all the time. And a female listener. That is a pretty good trifecta, Monica. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for, for commenting. First time, uh, sorry, first I got a better rate. So, thanks for that advice. Saving so much more in a month. That is awesome, Monica. Do us a favor. Um, you're on Twitter because you sent me the question there. Uh, have a look for the hashtag get a better rate and share that with your family and friends. Um, we saw another one, uh, Rowan, actually, only on Wednesday it was, um, sent me a, a tweet saying he'd save 0.2% on his mortgage just by calling the bank and asking for a better rate. So seriously, fools, hashtag get a better rate, get on it and let us know on socials, kind of share the love so that we can really give the movement a bit of a boost. Monica says, my question is about investing in super. For example, growth versus balanced. What would you do if you were in your late 30s or early 40s? Thanks, Monica. Now, Monica, I have to say I'm a little bit offended that you're saying if I was in my late 30s or early 40s. I'm not sure how old you think I am. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the assumption that I'm not in my late 30s and early 40s is somewhat insulting. Um, I, I think she's talking about you, Doc. Uh, no, I'm kidding. What would you do, mate? If you're in your early 30s, <laughs> we can't tell Monica what to do, of course. But generally speaking, for someone in their late 30s, they've probably got, let's say, 30, how many years? Yeah, 30, 25 years to retirement. Maybe 30, depending on what yeah. the, maybe 67 might be the retirement maybe. age. Well, so let's say, well, let's say 25 to, 40, to 30. 
what do you reckon is the best way to invest super at that age? Well, you know, like, so it, this this comes down a little bit, little bit to you know personal preference, right? Should I, I would I would be investing in growth, and that would that's what I would do. That's what I do, and um, and yeah, like I, I mean, and Doc's only twenty two. Yeah, I'm only 22 and I'm investing in growth. I wish, um, but yeah, that, that's what I, I'd, I'd be investing in growth. I'd be investing in shares. I'd be investing um, essentially in the best growth shares I can, and and that 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 would be my personal model. Yep. Um, oh, yeah, uh, there are other things you can do. Um, you know, you can invest in property and you can invest for yield. Um, Again, lots of different ways to, you know, you know, skin the cat or whatever, skin the fish or whatever you want to say. Um, but yeah, uh, my personal preference is to invest for growth and uh, growth shares, basically. Perfect. Thank you, mate. Um, I will say for whatever, Monica, you, the as you probably will know, but certainly for other listeners, uh, growth versus balance in super is not just about growth shares versus balance shares. It's actually um, the, this mix of assets between international shares, Australian shares, property, cash, bonds, all that kind of stuff. Um, even even growth normally in, in shares are still only 80, 80, 85% max shares. Still got cash and property and, and whatever. So I, I got to say, I completely agree with Doc. You don't have to buy growth shares specifically in this pre-mixed options. Just going growth means you've got more exposure to shares than other asset classes. And I think you'll find certainly historically and what we can't promise or give forecasts or guarantees, over time I fully expect shares to continue to be the best performing asset class of that group. And so if you, and Asok says, all about your personal preference, if you can shut your eyes, either literally or metaphorically, for 30 years, and then simply open the present when you retire, I have a very, very high conviction, though again, no guarantees, very, very high conviction that you'll be much better served by a growth mix than a balanced mix. Now, in the meantime, it could be super volatile, right? So if you're the sort of person who's going to invest in growth until the next downturn and then get freaked out and go back to cash, then please don't do it because you're going to cost yourself money, right? So what you should do and what you can do, what you what you can kind of manage yourself is the real question here. But I have no, if you said, if, if anyone in your situation um, who said, I will promise not to touch my super for 30 years, I won't change my investment mix, I won't open the account and get freaked out, I'll just leave it in the proverbial bottom drawer and check it in 30 years time. I think growth is just a phenomenally better, certainly has been I don't see why it wouldn't continue to be. Um, as you say, Doc, my super, I'm, I've got an SMSF, but uh, my wife has a convoluted version. Uh, we, she's in our SMSF, plus she has a separate super account for different reasons. Um, and that's all in growth for exactly those reasons. So uh, growth all the way. At some point closer to retirement, you may want to consider um, changing it depending on how you want to use those retirement savings. But certainly for someone in their late 30s, early 40s, I reckon growth every day of the week and twice on Sundays, like today. <laughs> All right, one from Liam, mate. Do you like that? I like that. Just threw that in. Uh, question from Liam, mate. He says, hey, fools, with regard to these tough economic times, there's a big push for supporting local businesses, which I support from afar. By this, I mean I'm 23 and a frugal saver and invest every non-essential cent I earn, not spending much. Does this make me a bad citizen? Would love your thoughts. Liam, Doc, is Liam responsible for the collapse of the Australian economy? I think is what he's asking. Well, no. So... <laughs> You, you know, here's the deal, Liam. Uh, and I think, okay, so if every one of us decided not to spend a cent, then there would be a problem, yep. right? But there is a, a healthy balance between, you know, and this is something, again, this is, I don't want to give any personal advice to anyone, and we can't give personal advice for all heaps of reasons, but here's the thing to consider, right? There, there is it in an issue of, of how much you spend now, which is instant gratification versus 
what you're going to get in the future, what you want in the future, what you want to have in the future. So that's delayed gratification, right? So there's a balance between instant gratification and delayed gratification. Um, so, so that's something everyone has to consider. But my general belief is that anybody who is being, oh, I wouldn't use the word sensible, but you know, if you do, uh, if you spend, if you save some money now, you're effectively securing your future. If you're securing your future, you're going to be less of a burden to the society overall, to the country overall. Anybody who's investing well for 30 years is basically ensuring that they are not going to be a burden on Australia, Australia's tax system, Australian taxpayers, and therefore in the future generations. And in, in, in that sense, they're doing everyone a favor right and so so that is that aspect right and you know how much does one to one want to save and invest is really a personal question to decide but you know everyone should have targets at least in my mind mm. we have targets that you want to achieve we want to achieve and i'm sure everyone else should have the targets not thinking about what happens post 60 or 65 is I think dangerous. That is dangerous because that just assumes that somehow magically things are going to be good, right? You, you, you know, I, what I don't want to assume myself is the government is going to take care of me at 65. That has to be in my mind the absolute last fallback. Like, you know, if, if there's something be, be beyond last, that's 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 what I want it to be. Beyond last fallback mm. is the government. Okay, I'm going to assume the government is going to take <laughs> care of me, right? So, um, uh, and I, I think if each one of us did that, or if majority of us did that, then those people who are not fortunate enough to have done that um, are going to be supremely well taken care of. That's a, in my view, that's a fantastic society, right? So there's some cost upfront cost in terms, you know, less spending and things like that. Uh, there's also so much coffee one can drink and there's only so much, you know, so many new iPhones. Uh, like, <laughs> there's only so many new iPhones you can buy and so many oh, new Oh, come on, mate. There's uh, always more iPhones. I don't believe that for a second. You can always well, buy but, more but, iPhones. But, but no, but that, here, here's the thing. That you, how could you, there is not a new iPhone that comes out every, like, you, month, right? You can buy two or <laughs> three. Like one come that on. comes out I mean, but once you have, like, here's the thing, once you have the two, I can't, like, you know, there's only so much coffee you can have before it causes you, like, you know, heartburn. There's there's only so much food you can eat outside before it causes you some other problem. So, uh, you honestly, like, you know, I do my fair bit for, you know, uh, uh, the economy and things like that and the spending here and there. But, you know, uh, or, or, you know, and some days I really feel that I'm deliberately spending because, you know, I go to my the coffee shop I like just because I don't want it to close, right? <laughs> but, but but I think at the, at, the, at the bottom line is that, you know, we all should share. So I think, Liam, you shouldn't feel bad about it at all. Um, I think you're doing the absolutely right thing for yourself and um, for uh, Australians overall over the long term. At least that's my what I think. I, I, I tend to agree. Doc, it, it, Liam, it's a funny cycles are a funny thing economically. Um, I, I, the, the reality is that, and this is where, without getting political, this is where the governments are doing the right thing by putting money into the economy when they can, because they have the opportunity and ability to do so in a way that you and I don't. Uh, you could buy, you could buy an extra coffee, you could buy an extra iPhone, as Doc says. Um, you get limited use out of it. The money would add a few dollars to the economy. Um, net, net, you know, you want to get in a position where you're self-funded retiring, you're going to spend as much money as you can uh, and there's value in that, right? So to, to some degree, both at the same time is the important thing here. It's the walk and chew gum. Individual citizens doing the right thing by themselves and their own balance sheets actually mean less burden on the on the public purse, as Doc's already said. I think that's a, that's the super spot-on answer, Doc. Um, to some degree, it is a tough one, right? Like I think for me personally, we've, we are doing, we're helping out a little bit, mate. So we've chosen as a family to, 
eat out specifically, and not even necessarily maybe, maybe more than we would, but we kind of make a conscious effort to go and do a bit of a takeaway or a bit of an eat out at a cafe or a restaurant once a week at the moment. Um, 10 people, of course, only. Um, mostly takeaway, or the local cafe is getting a bit of business from us just to kind of help them get back on their feet, right? We feel like that's a responsible thing to do from a society perspective for some people who are actually are friends of ours and, and we kind of, not, not close friends, but you know, uh, we like the cafe owners, we know them, they, the kids go to the same school as our, our son does. Um, and so, you know, we're, just doing, we're trying to do the right thing. And, and so we're doing making a conscious effort to do that. We could choose to withhold all of that money if we wanted to and save more of it. Maybe that's even the smarter thing to do. So we're making kind of little bits and pieces. But I mean, Liam, the, as you say, mate, the extension of your view could be we should go out there, max up the credit cards right now and really try and inject some stuff into the economy. We could. That's what the government's doing there. They're maxing out the national credit card on our behalf. And I think that's where the stimulus is best left and used. Um, I think, as Doc says, the best thing you can do is absolutely try and build your own personal balance sheet. Because frankly, when recessions and stuff come, the people who are thrown onto the onto the uh, social welfare scrap heap, if you like, I don't mean the people on the dollars on the scrap heap, but you know, in terms of you know, you're throwing out of a job, left to fend for yourself, or whatever support you get from the government, if you have, if you're prepared for that, with the little debt as you can manage, the most savings you can do, the faster you can get to retirement, all that kind of stuff you're in a better position for yourself and frankly, a better position for the economy. And you can't spend the money when you're on the dole. Um, so you're always better looking at, not looking after number one, that sounds selfish, but doing what you can to look after yourself to minimise the burden from the government. So I completely agree. All right, let's go for a question from Bob. He says, first name only, please, for the podcast. Bob, well, I'm putting it up front. That's the best chance of me not screwing this up. So, mate, thank you. Hello, Scott and Doc. He says, these are good questions, mate. He says, I'm a long-time listener and have been a member of a number of different full services, both here in Australia and in the US over many years. It has undoubtedly changed my life and I'm very grateful. Thank you, mate. Over many years, I've introduced the philosophies of the Motley Fool to my now young adult children. Excellent. And I'm thrilled they have a good understanding of the importance of investing for the long term and starting early. How does that do? Just let's just stop there for a second. That's talk about paying it forward, mate. That's that's pretty cool, right? Like we get paid a we get paid a quid to do this, but the podcast itself we kind of do for the love of it. And um, pretty pretty stoked if our if our work both in the services and on the podcast have helped Bob and, and he's been able to help his kids. And that's kind of the you know the positive virtuous circle we like to see. Absolutely, totally. So he says, I was very nice. I was hoping you could revisit your discussion from a previous podcast regarding the comparison of a portfolio with the market in air quotes. The point you made in the previous podcast relating to how a small percentage difference can make a huge difference to returns over many years was well made. They made the point there that, you know, 8% versus 10%, 2% now feels like a decent amount. Over the very, 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 very long term, literally decades, that difference compounds to being multiples of your investment difference. So huge, huge differences. Is my question, however, is from a different tack. And I guess is more for the intellectual exercise. We're always up for that. Um, he says, the Australian market is dominated by banks and miners. And for the sake of the argument, I can say there's are not really growth companies. If I can make the assumption that most fools are growth investors, then it strikes me that comparing a growth portfolio with the Australian market is meaningless. In fact, if anything, it probably does little more than give a growth investor a false sense of accomplishment when they're beating the benchmark dominated by non-growth companies. After all, winning a race against a turtle is hardly a great accomplishment. He says, said slightly tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I understand that it is worthwhile process to have some sort of benchmark with which to compare your portfolio, but my question is, why would you compare a growth portfolio with the Aussie market? Is it really apples to apples? Looking forward to your thoughts. Thanks again for the great work. Full on, Bob. I like this question, Doc. I have an answer, but I'd rather hear yours first. What do you reckon? Well, I think it's a fantastic question. I think here's the thing, right? Uh, I think philosophically, he's right. Like, I mean, he's philosophically, he's right because, you know, um, if if I'm only investing in, 
I don't know, let, let's call it biotech companies, and then it's being compared with um, with with the ASX, which is dominated by banks and miners, then it's a different type of comparison. Um, and it's so I think part of the so the reason I think it's it's done the way it is done is twofold. I think one number one is you have to compare with something mm-hmm. if that's so therefore you have to pick something that is generally accepted in the industry and therefore you know generally accepted to be be fair or a reasonable comparison in the in the financial industry the the market index or you know total return market index mm-hmm. is generally accepted as a good reference so, so that's i think from a standard bearing point of view um i think that's what is done. Yep. I think that's a good practice, uh, and, and therefore it seems the right thing to do. Um, if here's the the flip side is we could compare with a different index. For example, we could compare with you know uh, the small orgs, which is you know basically the the index of the small companies, mm-hmm. and therefore that might be a fair comparison. Uh, however. One could come back and say that, well, that is not fair because, you know, the small orgs historically might have had delivered poorer returns to actually the all orgs uh, because a lot more companies in that sector actually get, you know, if you look at the a large collection of small companies, they get, you know, they actually die, right? So therefore the returns of those might actually be poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. So there's always the question of what is a perfect index to pick? Um, and there's no perfect answer to that. But I think, you know, you, accepting that, I think what we have said in the, in the previous podcast, uh, or to some something similar, is the answer would be your choice is you take a particular strategy. How much alpha you're getting out of that strategy versus just investing in a market ETF, right? And uh, you could extend that question and say, well, you know, why use the Australian Markets Index because that's what well most Australians would be familiar with. That's what most Australians understand. Well, why not use the S and P five hundred? Well, because that's what you know uh, people in America are using. Um, you could use any other index. You know, why not use the European index and things like that? So I mean, that broadly, I mean, maybe the maybe the fair fairest index to use would be the All World Index um, because if you wanted to be a share market investor. And you shouldn't really be worried about you know whether this market that market you should be able to just invest in you know let's say the top two thousand or five thousand companies in the world uh, and what returns do you get there versus what you get by picking a particular strategy I think maybe that's the answer but that's not what the industry does and you know we basically follow what the industry does so that's yeah that's that's how I think about it. I like that, mate. I'm going to add a couple of thoughts. Uh, not too many, though. I think so. Here's the first thing, Bob. I, I'm going to be a bit controversial, Doc. You you probably won't agree with me actually, but I, I want to say because it's, it's worthwhile. The growth investing has been in the ascendancy for more than a decade, and maybe it forever will. But there will be times, and maybe, maybe even maybe even the value growth thing is is not very useful. Maybe we change the way we think about the market and the sectors that work. But for a century, there have been times when growth has been in the ascendancy, times when value is in the ascendancy, um, because growth is obviously growth at a revenue level and at a profit level, hopefully. But there's a price that's worth paying or not paying for that growth, right? So um, if you'd have paid, I don't know, let's pick a stupid number, a trillion dollars for an Amazon share, Amazon share, you're going to lose money. If you pay $100,000 for an Amazon share, you're going to lose money. If you pay $100, you're probably going to make money. So there is still a price at which it's worth paying for these companies. They won't necessarily always be the value creators at a share price level from whatever the current share price is that they always have been. Certainly that's been the history, right? So if we'd have said in 1972, just to pick a random year, I don't know if that's even relevant, um, you know, let, let's not, you know, we're, we're, we're value investors and all the companies in the market are growth investors. Is it really worth comparing? There have been times when value has been great and, and outperformed growth. There's been times when growth has outperformed value. I think it's a mistake to only look at one subset or style and say, 
that's the only style we use, that's the only benchmark worth using. Because frankly, in some circumstances, let's say Doc's a growth investor, and let's say growth investing starts to suck really badly. Him, him saying, well, I'm betting the other growth investors won't be super useful because I can say, well, like, you could have bought the index and gone fishing, Doc. What, you know, why are you wasting all this time, effort, you know, energy? Surely something's got to change, right? And con- conversely, I can say the same thing about a value investor who does exactly the same thing in reverse and says, I'm a value investor and you know, I've beaten all the value investors. Yeah, well, if you've lost to the market, then you've lost to the market. And, and so that, that cost is real. And I think to some degree, assuming that only comparing against your style is it's kind of a bit self-serving at some level. Um, being the best growth investor if growth investing is terrible or the best value investor if value investing is terrible, I don't think it's particularly useful in terms of trying to pick the right approach and the right benchmark. So the idea is simply that the Australian stock market as a whole is going to go up X percent. If we're adding value to you as investors, we're going to give you X plus something percent over the long term. If we do that, we're worth your money because otherwise you've got to choose an index or a, or a strategy to, to, to follow and invest in. Um, so I, I, don't, I think the questions are a good one for an intellectual perspective, Bob, but my, my strong view is the market is the market. And Doc's point is actually valid. It could well be the international market, although we use the all odds because our services, with the exception of a couple in, in some bits and pieces, only invest in the ASX. And so to some degree, it makes no sense for us to, you know, if, if, if the universe of available stocks is the ASX, uh, then the benchmark should be the ASX by definition. If we had an all world service and we said we're going to do the best to give you the best possible results from anywhere in the world, then using the world index would also make sense because, again, if, if the NASDAQ is the best index, well, we should only invest there or only invest in that ETF. So they're all still, they're all still conscious choices. Um, but we, we figure the broadest benchmark for the universe we're drawing the stocks from just simply makes the most logical sense and tells you whether we're adding value or whether buying an ETF is, is better value. Any thoughts, Doc, on, on that one before I move on? No, I have nothing to add. Speaking of great growth investors, I reckon our listeners should join you at Motley Full Extreme Opportunities, mate. What do you reckon? I think they should. So if you want to check out... they should. It's a very... It's very cheap, is what I'm going to say. It's extraordinarily (laughs) cheap. But you've said that a lot. Um, Doc is is perennially offended how cheaply we're selling his service. And I don't blame him, quite frankly. The value the guys are adding uh, compared to the price we're charging is is pretty um, pretty compelling, I've got to say. I, 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 I... I'm not sure. I'm, I'm only here saying no because I'm not sure what the legal eagles would say about this. But I'm going to say it anyway, and then apologise later. I don't see how you could not, even even for even for sheer the value of kicking the tyres. The service is so cheap that, like, not doing it, not trying it at all, strikes me as bizarre. If you've got any sort of portfolio you're building over time, paying less than a cup of coffee a week and like half a cup of coffee a week is so cheap. Um, not doing that. I don't. I don't. You won't owe it yourself to do the research and spend the money just to see what it's like, right? I'm pretty sure you'll stay when you get there. By the way, because the guys are beating the market and doing a spectacular job of picking what I think the guys think will be the next best biggest growth companies of tomorrow. With some with some errors and mistakes, it's a higher risk service, but we expect higher returns. And certainly, the boys have delivered that so far. So. Why not join Doc at EO? Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. EO for extreme opportunities. So fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Have a look, sign up, give him a whirl. I reckon you'll be pretty glad you did. At least that's my, my thinking. No promises, no guarantees. But man, so cheap. <laughs> anyway, um, Doc, a question from Maddie. You'll love the hashtags. First name only, he says. He doesn't say please. So, Matty, you know, just, just, if I can use your manners, mate, just don't expect you're going to get what you ask for. Uh, he's got another question. Thanks for answering the last one. Very awful. He says, the banks seem to be in trouble, but what about Macquarie Bank? It's down a fair way from its highs, but should we think about them in the same risk category as the other major banks, or are they different? I know Docker said some positive things about them in past episodes, but trying to get my head around how they are different to the big four. He says, thanks, legends. Love your work. Hashtag get doc somewhere. 
Hashtag, what even is Twitter? So this question came from Maddie on Facebook. Obviously a Facebook <laughs> user, not a Twitter user. So hashtag, what even is Twitter? And hashtag, get Doc somewhere. Um, I think Doc could take somewhere over Instagram just quietly. But uh, mate, what, uh, what would you tell Maddie about Macquarie Bank compared to the other big ones? You, you know what I was going to say? Like I've said nice things about Macquarie, but you know Macquarie is a recommendation in your service. So I was just going to say that you should answer that question because uh, I might just butcher Macquarie. You know, I, I actually like the bank a lot. It's actually my favorite. If I have to pick a bank, if I were ever to invest in a bank, an Australian bank, it would be uh, Macquarie. But I'll, I'll turn it over to you because you and Leggett have recommended it. So. Yeah, we have. Um, look, so here's the thing about Macquarie. I um, so a couple of things. Why is it different? It's different in heaps of ways. It's 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 kind of almost chalk and cheese. Um, Macquarie is kind of one part trading company, one part asset manager, uh, one part bank. <laughs> um, in fact, it was now called Macquarie Group rather than Macquarie Bank because the bank is a sub company. A, you know, kind of a the Macquarie Group is the holding company of all those different businesses plus the bank. So we call it a bank, and it kind of is, but it's a it's a it really is like a wealth management business. I mean, and even wealth management, it's kind of, it kind of makes you sound like they're, they're a fund manager, right? These guys literally try and find ways of making money. That's all they do. And it happens that most of it's in the financial services space. So they're a financial services company, absolutely. They will go wherever and whenever it makes sense. They have been in mortgages. They were, remember Sydney Airport used to be Macquarie Airports back in the day and there was Macquarie Roads and there was Macquarie Telecom. Actually, I don't think it was ever theirs. It was Macquarie Everything, right? They made a squillion dollars charging fees as an asset manager of those assets. They will honestly go wherever they can make money and fair enough too. So they are, I mean, they have a mortgage business so that to some degree they're exposed to the mortgage market and you should absolutely be keep that in mind. But they do commodities trading in North America. They've got investments in green power and I think water in the UK. Um, these guys are literally just looking around the world saying, hey, where can we put a dollar and make two? And that's literally all they're doing. Not in an investing way like a Buffett or a someone or a Sol Pats with a listed investment company. They're taking the cash and making deals, doing investments, starting businesses where it makes sense to do so. So they are literally chalk and cheese. Other than I said, there is there is that, you know, within its business is a mortgage business and a, and a, and a leasing business, the Macquarie Leasing. Um, I think Macquarie Leasing does, Tesla does it, Doc. Do you remember that correctly? Um, I don't know, actually. Okay. Um, or maybe they find the, the, the loans. Anyway, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, they, they will go wherever they can make a buck. Uh, so they're a dramatically different business. That makes them really, really, really hard to analyze as an analyst because as an investor. Because you can't kind of say, well, Willie's going to sell groceries for the next, you know, 100 years. How many more groceries next year? How many more groceries in five years? How many stores? How much profit? You kind of, you know, try and think about that business. With Macquarie, if you'd have five, 10, 15 years ago said, ah, oh, so what Macquarie is now is this, it wouldn't have been very useful because what it was in the next five or 10 years was entirely different or mostly different business. Um, so really, really super hard to analyze. Here's my thing. I would never, ever bet against Macquarie. These guys employ the smartest people in the room, incentivize them wonderfully, and send them out to try and make some money for the company and, by the way, themselves. Now, it's not called a millionaire's factory for nothing. That is a really, really powerful thing. And while ever the model supports that, now, the most important assets walk out the door every day, so you've got to be careful about that. They could literally all leave. While ever Macquarie makes it an attractive place for them to work and do their thing, get rewarded for it, make money for shareholders, that's a pretty nice, pretty nicely aligned skin-in-the-game kind of investment idea. Um, and you can kind of look at the book value and say, okay, well, it's trading a certain price and the book value is X. In other words, the amount of cash and assets it has on its balance sheet and try and work out how much you want to pay for that. Um, it's a really, really hard one. It's a recommendation of ours, Doc. And we did it at one point when we just figured that it seemed relative to book value and relative to the earnings it was kind of kind of, you know, uh, churning out was a reasonably good value. Now, it's trading at 15 times earnings. The other banks are much cheaper than that. But 15 times earnings for a business that is, has a really, really strong long-term reputation of finding places to make money, 
I think is a pretty good deal. If you know, if I could get, um, you know, that sort of return on on long term compounded asset base, I'd probably do it. Uh, well, we would do it. That's why exactly why we recommended the shares. It is a really really tough one to do. Anyone who tells you they know exactly what's going to happen with Macquarie is lying. Um, so if you see an analyst says, "Oh, it's going to make this much money in five years time because of X." Are they lying to you or they're lying to themselves or both, as I like to say regularly? Because you can't know. You literally cannot know how this business is going to roll out. Um, but as I said, it's, it's a business that has just done really, really well over a long period of time with smart people in the room. Uh, they're a business I'm very happy to have a bet on. Uh, I would never bet against. Do you want to add anything to that, Doc? It was a bit of a, it's a bit of a woolly one, right? It's really, really hard to be specific about because it is one where, and we didn't recommend it for ages, right? For exactly that reason. I just went, look, I don't know what's going to happen with this one. I just can't see moving forward. I find it really tough to try and work out how it's going to make money in five years' time and what that's going to look like. And eventually we just said, well, on a, on a kind of, you know, an assessment of value and risk, we think it's good value when we recommended the shares. I still think it's a buy today, by the way, so I'd happily buy some shares today. But that's exactly why. Sorry, Matt, over to you. Yeah, one of the things I do with companies of this type is, you know, like you think of these as like, I think of these as like jaw knots, right? Yeah. And, uh, and and then if they're that sort of company, sometimes it's just an assessment of their PE value mm-hmm. range, you know, like if you can buy these companies that sort of when, the, you know, when the, monk, uh, the, the, the market sort of, you know, is kind of hating them, if you buy them at that sort of, that sort of valuation range, then you can, you can expect that you'd make above market returns with this because these you know, over longer time periods, these companies generate a lot of value. Mm. Um, so that's how I look at, at, at sort of some of these. You know, when these companies get out of favor, mm. they are potentially really good, uh, good, uh, good entry points. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I like Macquarie for what they do. They're, they're certainly you know way better than um, our retail banks, largely because they are not exposed to the same sort of economic activity related issues mm-hmm. that um, you know, let's say a Commonwealth Bank, for example, might be exposed to. Yeah, nice. Mate, we've gone for too long again, but hopefully we've uh, given our listeners something to enjoy their Sunday afternoons. Hopefully it's good weather and hopefully you're having a good day wherever you are around Australia. Hopefully you're listening to this. If you are on iTunes, maybe you're not seeing this yet. So maybe this is a Monday morning listen when you go and check your feed. But again, if you um, hopefully it's going to be fixed sooner rather than later. Mate. Hopefully the new podcast one change might, might help things on a little bit as well. All right, mate, that wraps us up. Before we go, our listeners shouldn't forget they can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, as I mentioned, or your favourite Android podcast app, or, of course, the new Podcast One Australia app that we're now part of, which we're pretty excited about. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating on iTunes. Tell your friends, leave us some stars. Basically, just do something for us. Help us out. Help a brother out. We're trying to spread the word. We're trying to spread foolishness around the world, at least around Australia. Although... Got a question from Lebanon, mate, which we'll ask next week. So there's a bit of a teaser. Um, expanding our reach, we've had the US, we've had Hong Kong, Hungary, Lebanon, UK. Have I missed anywhere else? Um, no, Japan, I think we had Japan. Japan. I think we had Japan. We are pretty much the name Edna Everidge of podcasting, financial podcasting. We are worldwide megastars or something. Uh, of course, don't forget you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money and our special mailbag episode. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. Value stocks. Markets. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.